You're listening to audio from Ascend Church. For more information about Ascend or to access more gospel-centered tools to grow as a disciple of Christ, visit ascendkc.org. Let's grab our Bibles and turn to the Gospel of Mark, chapter 4. And if you don't have a Bible with you, would you grab one of those Bibles in the seats in front of you and find Mark, chapter 4, on page 839. We continue our study of the Gospel of Mark and really find ourselves in the middle of a section where both Mark as well as Jesus are making it clear that there are two groups of people. As we think about the Gospel of Jesus Christ, there are two groups of people. There are those who are in relationship with Jesus, those who are truly disciples and followers of Him, and then there are those who are on the outside looking in. And last week, he gave a story that is perhaps familiar to you if you've grown up in the church or it's even been portrayed in popular culture of the sower, the seed, and the soils. And we learned through that story that the two groups are not easy to be able to discern. Sometimes a group might look like it's the in-group, but they uh, demonstrate by the patterns of their lives that they have not fully committed, that the gospel has not taken root in their hearts, and they are not bearing fruit. And we saw last week that that is the evidence of whether or not you are truly a disciple of Jesus Christ. But as we continue this chapter and see what Mark includes from the life and ministry of Jesus, we're going to get an opportunity to see behind the scenes, to to see how that gospel takes fruit, it takes root and bears fruit in the life of a believer. How does this movement of Jesus fit into the big story of Scripture, to God's plan before the foundation of the earth that continues on today? What does that look like? What is our role? And what it is going to expose is the title that I put in your notes, and that is it gives us an opportunity to see fulfillment and savor expectations. So I tried to come up with a story. We have the greatest storyteller that ever lived that we're studying this morning. And so I came up with a story. It's kind of lame, but hopefully it conveys the principle. Imagine we're coming to the end of school year. Some of you are getting ready to graduate and you've put in all of this hard work, not just this year, but in the years leading up. And it reminded me of high school. Grades are important in high school. When you're in elementary, when you're in middle school, grades are important, but, but you come to this realization in high school that the grades that you achieve actually impact your ability to go to college. They actually ab- affect the opportunity you have for scholarships and maybe even the opportunity you have to get a good job. And so what would happen if the freshman orientation, all of those freshman students are sitting there getting ready for the beginning of their high school career, and the principal comes in and says, I just want to tell you something. I promise you that I can guarantee you will get the grades that you need to get into the school that you want, to get the scholarships that are required, to be able to get the job that you will enjoy for the rest of your life. Everybody would clap, wouldn't they? including the parents. But as the clapping dies down, the principal says, but there are also expectations. The expectations on you is that you will attend class. The expectations on you are that you will do your homework, that you will fulfill your exams. And it doesn't matter how how good you do on those, you will get the guaranteed grade that leads you to the scholarship, that leads you to the school, that leads you to the career. The students are all excited about that until Monday morning. 
And they get up early and they go to school and they're thinking, oh man, I'm tired. I could have slept in. And as the semester goes on, the the schoolwork is challenging and they've got to work hard at home. And some of the teachers they don't enjoy and some of the exams they don't necessarily do well on. But in the back of their mind, they hear the principal guaranteeing that if they just fulfill their expectations, they will give evidence that he can then affirm to them the grade that he promised. Now, at some level, this little story breaks down, but it's intended to convey this principle that Jesus is conveying that the gospel provides a guarantee of fulfillment, but it also requires expectations. And so let me read the passage together, and then we will dive in. Mark chapter 4, hopefully you've arrived there, beginning in verse 21. And he, Jesus said to them, is a lamp brought to be put under a basket or under a bed and not on a stand? For nothing is hidden except to be made manifest. Nor is anything secret except to come to light. If anyone has ears to hear, let him hear. And he said to them, pay attention to what you hear. With the measure that you use, it will be measured to you. And still more will be added to you. For to the one who has, more will be given. And from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. And he said... The kingdom of God is as if a man should scatter seed on the ground. He sleeps and rises night and day, and the seed sprouts and grows. He does not know how. The earth produces by itself first the blade, then the ear, then the full grain in the ear. And when the grain is ripe, at once puts in the sickle, because the harvest has come. And he said, With what can we compare the kingdom of God, or what parable shall we use for it? It is like a grain of mustard seed, which, when sown on the ground, is the smallest of all the seeds on the earth, yet, when it is sown, it grows up and becomes larger than all the garden plants and puts out large branches, so that the birds of the air can make nests in its shade. With many such parables, he spoke the word to them as they were able to hear. He did not speak to them without a parable. But privately, to his own disciples, he explained everything. Potentially some familiar stories and parables for you, but I pray that as we dive into them completely, that we will better understand the context and the purpose that Mark provides them and why Jesus taught them. Now, as we dive in, I just want to remind you, if you're new to Ascend, What I try to model in doing this before every sermon is to let you know that simply reading the Bible will give you the truths that you need for life and godliness. Just that simple reading hopefully conveyed truths to you by the work of the Holy Spirit in your heart that you understand this word. But when we dive in, when we start to pick it apart, When we do the work of digging, what I hope that you see is that we uncover treasures that are not necessarily discernible when we simply read it. Deep wells of water that are not necessarily mined unless you do the hard work and the investment of studying God's word for yourself. So that's what I'm trying to model. Every sermon is not just teaching you truths about God's word, but modeling how you yourself can study it. So let's dive in together and look, number one, at the residuals of investing. The residuals of investing. Again, let me set up the context. In fact, let me back up quite a bit. 
Remember back in verse 11 of chapter 4. Jesus is teaching parables for a purpose. Look back at verse 11. Do you see what the purpose is? So that his true followers, his true disciples, those who are in relationship with him can understand the secrets or the mysteries of what? What does it say? The kingdom of God. And beloved, this word kingdom, this phrase kingdom of God is used a lot in Christian circles. And I think oftentimes it's misunderstood. People will often use kingdom or kingdom of God when they're talking about churches reaching across the denominational differences to do something in the community. Or it'll be a a service project where people are feeding the homeless or, or they're clothing those who do not have coats and they're saying, hey, this is all for the kingdom. And what they're saying by that typically is let's lay aside our differences for one purpose. Beloved, listen, that one purpose is where it is so important. Because a lot of times what people are meaning when they say kingdom of God or kingdom is they're simply speaking in generic terms of faith or good deeds toward people. That's why I don't like it when organizations only say they are faith-based and don't say they're about Christ or the gospel. Because there are a lot of people that are out there that are faith-based, aren't there? There are a lot of religions that are out there that are faith-based, but those religions and many of those people's beliefs do not align with the scriptures. They do not align, as Ben was talking about, with the Jesus who is defined in this book. This is the definition of Jesus. This is the definition of the gospel. This is the definition of the kingdom. So let's define it. So strap your seatbelts of your Tesla Those of you who've been coming for a while know that's my favorite car that I will never have. I looked out in the parking lot and someone this morning had a Tesla. So I'm looking for a new best friend. (laughs) But let's buckle up our seatbelts in our metaphorical Tesla and go from zero to 60 in 2.3 seconds. Write down Genesis 128. This is really where as the creation begins, the concept of the kingdom of God begins. And, and God told Adam and Eve, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and exercise what over it? Dominion. That, that term is a kingly, a, a royal term. And, and what we see as Genesis 1 and 2 unfold is that God designed human beings to be prophets, priests, and kings and spread his news and his goodness throughout all of the earth. How did Adam and Eve do with that? (laughs) Failure. Then we get to the flood in Genesis 7 through 9. And you know what's interesting about those passages is that it actually is a reversal of creation, isn't it? You have creation that is flourishing, life that is flourishing, and now through the covering of water over the entire earth, almost all life dies. And yet God in his infinite grace and wisdom spares humanity, spares, hu- spares animals through the ark, through Noah and his family, and then you actually see a reversal of the destruction of creation, don't you? It's almost a creation 2.0. And you see out of the water comes land, just like Genesis 1. Out of the land comes vegetation, just like Genesis 1 and 2. And in that reversal of destruction in creation 2.0, you actually see the creation mandate 2.0 in Genesis 9.1, where God tells Noah and his family, be fruitful 
and multiply and fill the earth. Be prophets and priests and kings and spread my good news and my, my good message throughout the earth. How did Noah and his family do? Genesis 11, Tower of Babel. So then what does God do? Well, in his graciousness and in his wisdom, he selects Abraham. And he becomes the father of the ethnic people of Israel. And they are commanded when they come out of the Exodus to go into the land of Canaan, a land that had been decimated by spiritual atrocities and spiritual death and bring life into that Canaan. That's why God sent Israel back to Canaan, is to be prophets and priests and kings in that horribly spiritually dark area of the world. And then, as Habakkuk 2.14 says, expand his good news to the ends of the earth. How did Israel do? Do it with me. So the problem that has been demonstrated by this pattern is that human beings are not sufficient to fulfill this mandate. Nations are not sufficient to fulfill this mandate. Someone else is needed. Write down Matthew chapter 6, 16 verses 18 and 19. Jesus is speaking to his disciples and he asks them, who do men say that I am? Peter says, you are the Christ, the anointed one, the promised one, the Messiah, the son of the living God. And we've talked at great lengths here at Ascend that that phrase points the Jewish readers back to the Old Testament, to Adam, the son of God, to Israel, the son of God, to Solomon, the son of God, and then to Daniel seven thirteen, where the son of man will be the ultimate fulfillment of where everyone else has failed. And what Peter says is you are the Christ, the son of the living God. Jesus affirms that statement and says, upon this rock, I will build my church. Now, what's interesting about that statement is what follows in verse 19. Jesus tells Peter, I will give you the keys, do you know what he says, to the kingdom of heaven. In Matthew, kingdom of heaven, kingdom of God are synonymous. What Jesus is telling Peter that it is no longer about who follows me, but who my followers are following. He's saying no longer am I dependent on individuals or on a nation to advance the kingdom, to ensure that the kingdom will bear fruit, I am now taking charge. And it is Jesus who is the guarantor that the kingdom will be accomplished. Now what's wonderful is that God includes us, right? If you ever want to find something that will allow you to be humble in your salvation and in your Christianity, remind yourself what biblically defines who you are. And us, those who are dead in our trespasses and sins, those of us who did not even seek after God, have been transformed by Christ to be a kingdom of priests. Write down 1 Peter chapter 2 and verse 9. You are a chosen nation, a holy people. Revelation 5.10, in the eternal throne room, there are representatives from every tribe, tongue, and nation who are declaring holy, holy, holy. And it says that is a kingdom of priests. What the Bible in the New Testament is equipping us to understand is that God's plan from the beginning was never about an ethnicity. It was never about a religious system. It was always about a people who would be recognized as giving faith forward to Christ, faith in Christ while he was here on earth, and those of us who look back to Christ and his completed work, that's what defines the people of God. A kingdom 
of priests who one day will be in his presence, write down Revelation 21 and verse 3, where John, from the throne, do you see that kingly vocabulary? From the throne, John hears a voice that shouts out, behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. Beloved, the kingdom of God is something that is fulfilled, but will be consummated in the new Jerusalem, the new heaven and the new earth, where there will be no more tears, no more pain, no more sorrow, no more death. I can't wait for that, amen? Now, what's important is the common denominator through all of those kingdom analogies. The common denominator is not simply a religious faith. The common denominator is not people who just want to do good for creation. All of that is good. All of that is valuable. But what makes us kingdom citizens, what actually advances the kingdom of God, is a biblically defined faith in a biblically defined Jesus. And so it's that kingdom of God that Jesus is trying to teach the crowds That Jesus expects his followers to understand, to live differently in light of, to advance the kingdom toward Revelation 21 and 22. So with all of that background, now we can arrive at the text. It says in verse 21, he said to them, is a lamp brought. What is the lamp? The lamp is the message and the kingdom of God itself. That is what the lamp is. And a lamp in the ancient context was this little clay pot that would be filled with olive oil. And if you ever go to Israel, they will charge you an arm and a leg, which I no longer have because I bought a few of them for my kids. And they're in a box somewhere, which actually fits well into this text, doesn't it? But, but that lamp would actually put on a stand high up in a room so that it would provide light to the entire room without which it would be completely dark. And so Jesus uses an analogy here, and he says, if you have a lamp and the surroundings are dark, you don't put it under a basket, do you? You don't put it under a bed. The light is intended to shine. But we don't often do that, do we? How do we put the light of the kingdom under a basket or under a bed? Three ways. I would encourage you to write this down. First of all, we never buy it. We never buy it. The gospel is offered to you. And yes, it is free of charge. You don't have to do anything to achieve it, but you have to give up everything to receive it. And remember, we've talked about this. When when Jesus says to his disciples, follow me, he's not saying you can no longer have family relationships. You can no longer work outside of the church. What he's saying is your perspective changes. Your allegiance changes. What's most important when you're a disciple of Jesus Christ is not all of the things that the world offers. Now it's Jesus. And so when you come to the light, you have an opportunity to buy it by giving up your life and receiving Christ. Have you done that? The second way, though, that we cover this light with a basket or put it under a bed is we don't interact with it. We don't interact with it. We get the light, we receive it, but it's, it's almost like it's on a shelf, And we pull it down when we need it. We pull it down when it's convenient. We pull it out once a week for an hour and a half. But we don't interact with the kingdom message during the week. The third way we put the 
kingdom under a basket or under a bed is we don't share it. Have you ever heard that the Christian life is a personal relationship with Christ? And it is. It is a personal relationship, but it's not intended to be private, despite what our culture is trying to do. If you are on a ball team, or if you're in a class, or if you're in a a workplace, or in a neighborhood, and you have conversations with people on a regular basis, and they would be shocked to know you're a follower of Jesus Christ, it's probably under a basket. And so what is the solution? Well, Jesus actually gives that in verses 25 and 26. But before we get there, look at verse 22. Nothing is hidden except to be manifest, nor is anything secret that comes to light. The word secret is crucial for understanding that sentence. Remember, in the Old Testament, the gospel was a mystery. It was a shadow. It doesn't mean that it wasn't there. It doesn't mean that the information wasn't accessible, but it just hadn't been revealed. And so what Jesus is saying is, look, the kingdom is like this thing that is hidden. It's like this thing that is a secret, but the kingdom is different in that it will come to light. It will. And we'll see that as this passage unfolds. But what we have responsibility to do and the expectation is our investment. Verse 24, with what measure you use, it will be measured to you. Write this down. Measured means study to understand. Measured means study to understand. So to the degree that you study to understand, it will actually give you understanding. And then it says more will be added to you. I think a better translation in the English would be more will be provided to you. The tools that you need to have greater understanding will be given to you as you study to understand. That's awesome, isn't it? That did not work in 10th grade biology for me. The more I studied, the more I was just ridiculous. I frustrated. We had to dissect a frog in the seven, as a sophomore. That's ridiculous. I mean, watch a YouTube video, right? I'm just kidding. It smelled so bad. Mine had the caviar in its stomach. It was pregnant. I digress. But beloved, listen, the more that you study to understand, the Holy Spirit promises that he will give you what you need to continue to understand. But what happens to so many of us is we leave it on the shelf. We get intimidated by others who seem to know so much. Do you have anybody in your small group or in your friend circles who you're just like, man, they just know the Bible. I can never be there. They started out just where you are. The difference is, is they immerse themselves in the scriptures. Now, what Jesus says in verse 23 is the epicenter of this particular part of the teaching. He says, if anyone has ears to hear, let him hear. What Jesus is literally saying here is, if you have ears, and let's say that you do for the sake of argument, then you must hear. Think back to Jesus' crowd. Who were individuals who said that they had spiritual ears to hear? The scribes. The Pharisees, the religious leaders, pretty much all the Jews, if you watch The Chosen, you can see they are amazing at how much they know Scripture. And that's accurate. Little kids would learn Torah early in their lives. They would memorize it. That's why so many of the Psalms are in certain rhythms and cadences that would help them better be able to remember it, set it to memory. And so the Jews are sitting there and they're saying, hey, we know scripture. We know about the kingdom. And he says, okay, if you know it, then prove it by understanding. And remember, we talked about how understanding is more than just intellectual. It's demonstrating that through application. So three ways that you can make sure that your lamp of the kingdom is on the lampstand. 
And they coincide to the ways that we put it under the bushel and the couch, but I would encourage you to write this down. Number one, buy it. Buy it. Matthew 16 says that you must give up your life to find it. But you lose, your, you lose your flesh, but you gain your soul. Beloved, the ultimate sacrifice is you giving up who you are, but the ultimate gain is your identity becoming Christ. So the first thing is buy it. Number two, immerse in quality resources. Would you please write that down? The word quality is so important, and it's defined biblically. Just because someone says that they're a Christian, just because there's counseling out there that says it's Christian counseling, just because there's a building that has a cross on it, just because somebody writes a book that is from a Bible college does not mean it is a quality gospel resource. So how can you tell? Well, the resource needs to be talking from the Bible, not just about it. There's a lot of authors, a lot of pastors out there that just simply talk about the Bible. They're talking from their own agendas, from their own definitions, but they sprinkle in the Bible as though somehow it's proving their own understanding. No, no, no. Our understanding comes from Scripture and from the Holy Spirit. Immerse yourself in quality resources that talk from the Bible that points you to the big story of the Bible, that by the authors and by the preachers, their life gives evidence that it has actually transformed them. And then number three, I know most of you might have already written down share, but it's not share. So we buy it, we immerse, but it's not just share. Because if we leave it at share, then it's something that we have to do, isn't it? I mean, don't you often think of evangelism as something, well, I guess I'm a Christian, I guess I have to do this. So I want you to write down number three, treasure. Treasure. Treasure Christ. Treasure the gospel. What happens when we treasure something is it's what happened last night for me. We were watching The Chosen. We keep watching that. We were watching episode three, and it was amazing, and my girls were totally into it. I had one eye on The Chosen because I loved that, but I also had one eye on the royals. And I'm watching them, and I'm seeing Salvi up there, and he missed his pitch. I mean, you only get one pitch in the big leagues to be able to hit, and in a bat, he missed it. Two pitches later, Salvi splash, game over. I didn't just sit there. I told my wife, hey, guess what? Sally just hit home run. They won the game. They're still in first place. Ah! Why? Because I treasure baseball. Beloved, when you treasure something, you share it, don't you? So if you truly treasure the kingdom, if you're truly one of those sinners of Ephesians 2 that now are alive in Christ, if you are one who can see the goodness of God and your suffering and your, your persecutions and, and you truly understand why that's the case, it's not because of you, it's not because of religion, it's because of the treasure of the kingdom of God, we treasure it and we share it. But it's work. It's investment. But what God promises through Jesus Christ himself is there are residuals from the investment. And that's where this message begins. Trust me, this is the longest point of our four. So number two, the reason for the increasing. Verse 26, we see the kingdom of God. Once again, he's back to the kingdom of God. If, if you look at the parallels of these accounts in Matthew 13, beginning there, the kingdom of God phrase is, is all over the place. Mark doesn't reference it as much, but it's there. 
So the kingdom of God is like this guy who goes out to the ground and he scatters seeds. That's my modern translation. This is a farmer. A farmer was a concept that the Jews of Jesus' day were very familiar with. They understood you plowed a field, you went out, you threw seed all over the place. You would water it from time to time. You would take out the weeds. They understood the process. But Jesus is brilliantly demonstrating the reason for the harvest. I'm I'm, going to risk. Okay, I'm wading out into some deep waters for just a moment. Would you allow me to do that? I'm going to get a little technical. The, The tense of the verb is important here. In verse 26, it says the man should scatter seed. This is a tense that is a snapshot tense. It's only focusing on the activity, the action. The tense of the verbs in the rest of this verse are present, ongoing, focusing on the process. Why is that important? Because it's reminding us of our humanity and it's reminding of us who does the increase. We as human beings do snapshots with the gospel, don't we? An interaction here, a window somebody has into our life there, but they're just snapshots. The activity and the process belongs to someone else. But before we get there, look at the the humanity that is found in verse 27. The, The person who scatters sleeps and rises. We are beholden to the process of life. We have to get sleep at night. We have to wake up in the morning. We have to brush our teeth. I'll just stop right there. This is the fallen world in which we live. We have a life that needs to be maintained. We are responsible for that process. But when it comes to the gospel, our job is just the snapshots because the present tense of the actual growth of this little seed, look at what verse 28 says. Is that right? Yep. Verse 28, it produces, the earth produces it itself. In other words, the creator and his process of creation is responsible for the seed. You don't see the farmer go out in the morning and and go down into the ground and, oh, I'm going to germinate you, little seed. I'm going to pull up the blade. I'm going to put leaves on there. That's not our job. In fact, it says here that the farmer doesn't even know how the process works. He can't figure it out. What this is doing is Jesus pointing the listeners and us to the fact that the advance of the kingdom is not on us. The reason for the increase, the reason for the germination, the the reason for the, the growth, the reason for the ripening, and then it says in verse 29, for the actual time when the grain is ready to be harvested, we have snapshot responsibility throughout that process, but it is God divinely who accomplishes it bringing it to fruit. You ever get frustrated with people in your life that you're investing in and they just don't get it? Parents, you ever get frustrated with kids that you shepherd according to the gospel and they just don't get it? Do we all get tired of America just not getting it? I do. America that produced Jonathan Edwards, one of the greatest theologians of all time, And you look at the headlines, you look at the legislation that's being passed, and it's the exact opposite of God's design. America, come on, wake up. Never get frustrated with you not getting it. I know I get frustrated with me not getting it. 
I'll react to something, I'll respond to something. In a marriage, maybe there's a situation where my, my wife responds in a way that frustrates me. It's, it's rare, babe. <laughs> but then I'm just, I've had a long day and it's all just kind of piling in on me and I, I respond to her in a way that does not honor Christ. And I'm like, man, where did that come from? I've got all of this scripture. I've, got, I've preached on this. I've counseled people about that. Where did that come from? It reminds us that the increase is divine, isn't it? That it's farming work. This is why scripture refers to the gospel as farming work. This is why Paul refers to his own growth as a disciple of Christ in farming terms. Write down Romans chapter 7 and look at that later. The Apostle Paul, I believe that he wrote Romans 7 toward the end of his ministry where he was already a mature apostle. And he says, that which I don't want to do, I do. And that which what I do want to do, I don't. And he's struggling with this. Like, Paul, why don't you get it? And man, if Paul didn't get it, I got no chance. But we do, don't we? Because Paul asks, oh, wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this? And the answer is the same for Paul that it is for you and for me. Thanks be to God. Through Christ, we receive the victory. That's why 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verses 6 and 7, talks about Apollos planting, Paul watering, but it's God who brings forth the fruit. That's why Proverbs 22, verse 6 says, parents, you raise up a, train up a child. It's a process in the way they should go. And as a general rule, they will not depart from it. That doesn't always happen, but the emphasis there is on the process of parents. You plant, you water, you, you pull weeds. The farming work is also reminded to us by Jesus in Matthew 16, 18. Jesus is building his church. It is a process. Beloved, it's more than ascend. It's more than the church age. This is a process that has been God's design before the foundation of the world. And, and as you look at history, be encouraged, would you? B.C. 597, God's precious city of Jerusalem falls to Babylon, and they are taken away to exile. There would be the Medes and the Persians. There would be the Greeks. There would be the Romans, enemies of the gospel, enemies of the kingdom. The gospel continued to advance. Look at the headlines today. Look at the legislators today. Look at how they're trying to promote what is against God's design and squelch the advance and the message of the gospel of the biblical kingdom of God. There are enemies all around, and yet God promises the kingdom will flourish. Beloved, be encouraged by that. What this should do in your heart is to evoke in you a desire to scatter the seed. I pray that it does it for you. It's doing that in my heart even right now. Number three, the recognition of implementing. The recognition of implementing, and there's a, there's a low-hanging, easy-to-understand principle that's right here in these two verses, three verses, and then there's one we've got to work for. So let's get the easy one out of the way first. He said in verse 30, with what can we compare the kingdom of God? Remember, it's not just a future event. It's not just a, a concept. It is an advancing, inaugurated through the ministry of Christ concept. And he says in verse 31, it's like a grain of a mustard seed. You've probably heard sermons about this. You've probably read devos or devotions about this. I thought about putting pictures up on the screen, but there's debate as to what actual plant this is. So 
we know for sure that the seed of a mustard plant is small. It's usually smaller than a grain of sand, so it's extremely, extremely small. One type of mustard plant can grow from that seed to at least 15 feet tall. Another one can grow even taller than that, and the branches can actually begin to look like an olive tree, which if you've ever seen an olive tree, it's a sturdy trunk with sturdy branches, and it spreads wide. But no matter what the details of the biology of this plant are, the concept and the principle is clear, isn't it? And that is that the kingdom of God starts in unassuming ways. Didn't it do that in your life? The gospel comes to you not like some well-crafted marketing plan by Apple. They are brilliant, aren't they? They've got an event this Tuesday, and I'm, I'm going to tune in. <laughs> but it makes sense. There's colors. There's imagery. There's like these graphics, and, and the title of the event kind of mysteriously ties into what they're going to reveal. It's not what the gospel does. It comes in in unassuming ways. It's not flashy. It's not in a tightly wound box. It's, It's not during our best times, is it? Oftentimes, the gospel takes root in the times when we are at our lowest. That's what Jesus is saying is, look, the gospel does not work like the the world works. It doesn't flow out of wonderful world marketing It is unassuming. It is small. But guess what? Just like the mustard plant, it will have its way. You know what's interesting? When you look at the the archaeology and the, the mustard plants, either this one or this other, the mustard plant seems to sprout up as soon as it is planted. Isn't that cool? And that's why mustard herbs were so important in Israel, because you didn't have to have a whole lot of conditions. You just planted the thing, and boom, it's like the next day, like Jack and the bean sprout. It just popped up. But then also historically, it tells us that this was an herb that could take over the garden. And so while they liked the quickness of the growth, while they liked the herb that would help their food taste, they also didn't like the fact that it could often attack all of the nice flowers and other plants that they had in the garden. Do you see the imagery of how Jesus compares the kingdom to the mustard seed? I mean, we are in four chapters into the gospel of Mark, and the gospel has already spread throughout all of Israel. It's starting to be echoing into the Roman Empire. This mustard seed is growing quickly, and it's expanding, and it's starting to invade the religious garden, isn't it? And the Pharisee gardeners do not like that, do they? This is the low-hanging fruit, but there's actually some more difficult, but I hope treasureful fruit that I would encourage you to write down. Write down Ezekiel 17, verse 23. Again, you can just read Scripture and be able to understand it, but remember, Scripture was not written to 21st century Olathians. There there are gaps of history. There are gaps of culture. There are gaps of languages, and so we have to work quite a bit to be able to invest in bridging those gaps, and so when you do that, you'll see that the, the phrases that are found here in verse 32 actually point us back to Ezekiel 17, 23, and so what was going on in Ezekiel 17? Well, there was a, a king in Israel by the name of Zedekiah. And Zedekiah had made a treaty with Babylon. Babylon was the world's strong power at the time. 
And Babylon was having its way. And so Zedekiah decided, I'm going to make a treaty with Babylon so that we can be in agreement so that you don't attack me. Now the problem is, is that Zedekiah made that treaty and put Yahweh right in the center of it. So he pronounced his conviction and his commitment to the treaty by saying, in the name of Yahweh, I make this treatment. That in and of itself is not bad unless you deceive the other person. Unless you break the treaty. And so the king of Babylon is looking at this treaty and seeing, okay, Yahweh, the God of Israel. And now all of a sudden, Zedekiah breaks that treaty and deceives him. So he's like, Yahweh, the God of Israel. And Yahweh's name was shamed. Yahweh doesn't like that, does he? Which, if you're not familiar with Yahweh, Yahweh is the Hebrew term for I am, for the God of Israel. And so what does the Lord say in Ezekiel 17? He says, I'm going to cut off the portion of the tree that is Israel. And in the ancient context, nations were usually referred to as trees. And so the stronger your tree, the taller your tree, the mightier your nation. And so the Lord is saying, I'm going to cut off the portion of the tree of the nations that is Israel. That's a problem for Israel. But then it says when that gets whittled down to a stump, there will be a growth that comes up. Does that remind you of Isaiah 11? Would you write that down? Look at Isaiah 11, verse 1, at a later time, and you will see that out of the stump of Judah will come a shoot, will come a branch from the house of Jesse. Who is the fulfillment of that? It's Jesus. And so Ezekiel 17 is similar to this, and Jesus is referring to it here. And what he's saying is that the kingdom of God will be like this tree and like this shoot in Ezekiel 17, and the pattern back then that has come to fruition in their presence will continue on into eternity. And what will happen with that shoot is it will grow up and put big branches, this is my branches here, that are big enough for the birds of the heavens. What is he referring to? Well, in Ezekiel, he talks about Babylon being an eagle. So all of a sudden, you start to see the symbolism is birds are the Gentile nations. The same concept is found here in Mark 4. Is that this kingdom will come up like a mustard seed and have branches big enough so that members of every nation can find their rest in the tree. And the author of Hebrews says that we find our ultimate rest in whom? In Jesus. Jesus is our Sabbath rest. That is what Revelation 21 and 22 say is that finally, after all of these millennia of corruption, of sin, of wars, of sorrow, of suffering, of death, we will finally find our place of eternal rest. Jesus is promising that all of this will happen all from the unassuming seed of the kingdom of the gospel. And this is all throughout scripture, isn't it? There was a moon worshiper that was unknown before God picked him to be the father of Israel. That's Abram. There was a little baby who was helpless in a basket who became the deliverer of Israel. That's Moses. There was a little boy, the youngest of his family, who was serving as a shepherd out in the fields who became the greatest king of Israel. There was a fisherman who had a personality that was constantly sticking his foot in his mouth 
that became the leader of the disciples. There was a persecutor of the church who became the greatest church planter in the history of the world in Paul. There was a hedonistic young man who early in his life did whatever he felt like, whenever he wanted, that became one of the greatest theologians of the early church in Augustine. There was a Catholic monk who through his study of scripture turned the Catholic church upside down and sparked the Reformation in Luther. There was a little Pharisee who became a disciple of Jesus Christ who is attempting to preach to you right now. Beloved, the gospel is a gospel the size of a mustard seed, but it is guaranteed to sprout and to grow big enough branches that members from every nation, every life context, will find their rest in Christ. Recognize and be encouraged and energized by the implementing of the kingdom of God, which brings us to number four, a reminder of identification. A reminder of identification. This is a a summary statement of all of these parables, all of these stories that Matthew elaborates on, but Mark covers very quickly. And it says, with many such parables, he spoke the word to them. Who's the them? That's the crowds. As they were able to hear it. That is an important, important phrase. Remember, beloved, one of the ways that you demonstrate whether or not you are in the family of God is whether or not you understand the gospel and respond to it. And so he's preaching these parables, and they were able to understand to the degree that they actually had ears. But beloved, I think sometimes we can start to think too highly of ourselves when it comes to our Christianity, can't we? And here's what I mean by that. Oftentimes the church and Christians can devolve into a country club mentality. And what I mean by that is this, is that somehow the only way that you're accepted in here is if you know the secret handshake. The only way you can be accepted in Christian circles is if you know the vocabulary. Beloved, none of us on our own know the vocabulary. None of us on our own would enter this place. The only interest that we have is because we have help. And that's what you see in verse 34. Jesus did not speak to them without a parable. Remember, parables concealed and revealed But privately to his own disciples, he explained everything. We need help. You know, if you think that the church and Christianity is a country club, just look at the list of disciples in Mark 3, 13 through 19. Fishermen, tax collectors, zealots, accountants, all equal at the foot of the cross. Amen? As I look out on this congregation, I know many of you, there are some of you who have incredibly advanced degrees and are brilliant. There are others of you who are brilliant when it comes to street smarts and common sense. There are others of you who are extremely athletic. There are others of you who can't stand athletics. Every tribe, tongue, and nation principle is found here. We aren't all of the same cloth except that that cloth is Christ. And so, beloved, our pride does not come from our economic status. Our pride does not come from our education. Our pride does not come from our experience. Our identity comes from Christ. They needed help. We need help. And you know what God has given to us as the church? He has given to us the Holy Spirit. 
He has given to us the completed work of Christ. He has given to us the word of God, and he has given to us a local church. This is not a country club. This is a hospital of individuals who've come to a place in their lives where they acknowledge that they are spiritually, terminally ill. And we desperately need the great physician. 